So we don't typically like that word sin, do we? Uh, honestly, it's been used abusively. Many have come out of churches where that word has been used in a way that was bitter and browbeating and judgmental, and and that word comes out somehow in ways that, that just doesn't seem to be good news uh, or anything related to a category that could relate to the good news. It's interesting that David Brooks, as many of you know, he's described as a kind of traditionalist, I guess you could say, a uh, someone who's a crossover sometimes between liberals and progressives uh, and, and conservatives. He, he seems to play in different camps. But he, as you know, perhaps, uh, in an, he, he put out this book, The Road to Character. And in an interview um, regarding this book, uh, he was asked about what he sees as, as the impetus for this book. And he basically described a context that he feared had become uh, where there was a moral ambiguity. The rise of moral ambiguity is what he said. And, and, the, and the lack of moral clarity that he, he, he sees rising in a very quick manner. And interestingly, you know, he talks about that problem, and I've mentioned this before, I think, in this sermon series, that certainly uh, the 40s and the 50s is where this began, if you will, and, uh, where certain words sort of began to slip out of common usage, he says. And one of those words which he finds to be the most concerning that slips out of our usage is this word, sin. Again, he says, the big shift was the loss of the word sin. Now, of course, we use the word in context of desserts, and I get that. But it used to be something people acknowledged was a real category inside of themselves, And if you don't have sin, you don't have something to fight against. The question is then, how do we define sin? Brooks, qua St. Augustine, uh, describes it as disordered love. And of course, that harkens back to what sin is. Sin is a misplaced or disordered love, fundamentally. That is why it's the case that Christ... Uh, summarizes the whole law, the whole code of moral category, if you will, with thou shalt love the Lord your God, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. You know, there's this incredible aspect about sin that we have left alone, that we have not been willing to consider. And in the next five weeks, we're going to be talking about sin. I won't be using that word. I guess I'm going to be guilty as charged, right? The word will come out. But really, it's the context of moral clarity that we're going to be looking at. Now you're asking, why are you doing this? Well, we're in the book of, uh, in the epistle of 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, we know that the whole book is saturated. The whole book is informed by the reality of, of these wandering pastors and elders in the various churches of Ephesus. And there are many churches with many local congregations. And in this concern, he's seeing the way in which there's something coming out of their teaching. Uh, He would know it more clearly, obviously, than we would, but it's very clear throughout this book, but also if you go back and read the book of Ephesians, that there was this misunderstanding of the law in a manner that the law evidently was viewed as something bad, something to to get rid of, as in contrast to grace. 
Sound familiar? Law versus grace. Versus grace promised with law. Very big difference. And so clearly this is a book that's charging Timothy to go and and he's not surprised. I mean, if you remember uh, back in chapter 20 of Acts, there was a commissioning service or, or an ordination service of elders, pastors and elders in Ephesus in chapter 20. And there he even said, it must have already become known because even there he says, and from among your very own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul is really concerned for Ephesus. So much so that he's sending his his most prized colleague and and protege, his apostolic trainee, if you will, uh, Timothy, to go and set things in order. And there we know that there were people, he said, who desired to be teachers of the law, but they didn't understand what they were saying. They lacked training. They didn't understand how to understand the relation of the old and the new. We're doing Sunday school class right now. It fits very neatly into this series. They lacked this apostolic training and understanding. But what the key was to their error is something to do with, on the one hand, a kind of of Gnostic idea of continuing revelation through, through private revelations of the Spirit. There was a whole lot of emphasis on the Spirit giving revelations that were over against or even beside the revelation that had been coming through the prophets and the apostles, authorized revelation that is. But secondly was this misunderstanding of the law. And to illustrate this, Paul does here, interestingly enough, exactly what he did in Ephesus, in the letter to Ephesus. Because there, he's also charging the congregations, uh, particularly in the area of their moral laxity. As a part to the law. What does he do? He there walks you through the, the second five commandments of the Ten Commandments. And he interprets that through the old into the new in a way that would demonstrate that it not only does this, the, the Ten Commandments imply the negative or the thou shalt nots. But the implied, of course, if you had read through the whole law in Exodus as well as in Deuteronomy, was all the corresponding or reciprocal goods. So if you were commanded not to steal, Paul's going to say things in Ephesus like, therefore, work with your own hands that you might give to those who are in need. And off it goes. Well, here, Paul is wanting us to uh, revisit this exhortation to Ephesus. In an age of moral ambiguity, in an environment that I think all of us now can appreciate, it's in our political airwaves, it's in our social airwaves, it's in our economic airwaves, it's everywhere. There is moral ambiguity. We're struggling right now. And Christians especially. And that's exactly what Paul is concerned about in Ephesus. He says in Ephesus 5, therefore do not become partakers of them. He doesn't say these things because he wasn't worried about them doing that. He says them because he was worried about them doing it. In fact, they were doing that. Increasingly filled with this, this misunderstanding of law and this moral ambiguity, Christians were becoming more and more, quote, like them, end quote. For at one time, he says, you were darkness, 
but now you are light. He's trying to make this contrast between Christians and the world. And he goes on to say, and to discern what is pleasing to the Lord, take no part in their unfruitful lives of darkness, but instead even expose them. And he goes on to say that we should be as light. And he says, and he quotes the prophet, he says, awake then, O sleeper, speaking to the church. Awake in church. Arise from those dead ways. And Christ will shine on you. And so that's what's going to happen in the next five sermons, starting today, is we're going to take exactly what Paul does in chapter um, 1, as he specifically will address each of the five, second five commandments as relating to our social relationships, he'll put a very hyperbolic word to it, a kind of an extreme, which is a very appalling thing to do. He does it to waken us up. I mean, to look at the church and says, you're parent strikers? I mean, did, did it get your attention when she read that? It's like, are you kidding me? What's going on? We'll see that in a minute. But here we're going to look at it. But but most importantly, and in case you weren't with us a couple of weeks ago, or was it last week? I can't remember. Last week. um, Paul has already assumed that Timothy understood how rightly or lawfully to use the law. And you remember last week that that what we discovered is that in verse 11, we, we get the hint Because he says, the law is good if it's used lawfully. What do you mean by good, Paul? What do you mean by lawful, Paul? His answer in verse 11, you remember, is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Paul then, we go back and we read Ephesus. Timothy, having been schooled and discipled and trained by letters like Ephesus, very much named in those letters, as well as Romans and other places, and we begin to see what Paul was talking about. And what we described last week is the three uses of the law. To be clear, the first use of that law is to provide moral clarity. It's a good word, the law. We love the law. It brings clarity. It distinguishes sin, there's that word again, that which is self-destructive and destroys the world, sin, and righteousness. It distinguishes that for us so that we know what it is. But of course, as it makes it clear to us what sin is, it also becomes a heavy, intense condemning of ourselves insofar as we fall short of it. Paul's argument in Romans is very clear that all have fallen short of the law, the moral clarity that is provided through this law. Like a tutor, it brings us to our knees. It brings us to humility. And so if the first purpose of the law was moral clarity, the second purpose is to bring us to moral humility. A humility to discern ourselves as broken at our core. As Brooks has said, something's wrong with me inside. I can't fix it. I have this propensity of rebelliousness against God, which then flows all sorts of sins. And that moral humility then directs us to cry out, Oh, who will set me free from this body of death? Quote, unquote, the words of Paul in chapter 7 of Romans. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, he says. 
And that's, of course, the third use, moral redemption. Moral clarity, moral humility, moral redemption, the three uses of the law. And the point that I'm making by all this is that we're going to do this sermon, little mini-series within the Timothy, these five instances of moral clarity. We'll do them very self-consciously and intentionally working them through the three uses. You see, if you don't, that's where all the problems go. You see, if we, if we don't have moral clarity, then we become hedonist. We become those which dismiss morality as even a category, which is exactly what's happening in a postmodern era such as ours, where sin, if there is even such a category, is at most whatever's not good for you in your own estimation. Whatever doesn't work for you according to your own opinion about it, which is the epitome of what sin is if you go through the law, that people would do what's right in their own eyes rather than in humble submission to God. You see, it's, it's upside down right now. Have you heard that phrase? I mean, how many, well, that's, that's, if that's good for you. I mean, there is a moral code out there that is the absolute definition of what sin is in the Bible. Do what's right according to your own mind. If that works for you, that's good. Christians, we are playing into that. We are playing into that. That is very PC. That is very comfortable. We even promote our religion like that in many ways, more than maybe we would think if you stop to think about it. If it works for you, man, there's grace. Grace. The gospel's about grace. And it is. But not grace that therefore enables sin. For sin is evil. And its consequences are severe. And so there's the big picture of the next five weeks. Reviewing the fifth, the, the second five of the Ten Commandments, our social relations, using these hyperbolic words that Paul used to sort of shock us out of our, of our comfort as we rediscover the word sin, but not as a word left alone ever in the gospel, but as a word that both gives us moral clarity, but would humble us and enable us to see the moral perfection in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who would take our moral sins to the cross, who would satisfy the rightful and just wrath of God against it, in a manner that we can be raised with him to a newness of life. And the result of that, and this is my last point about this whole system here, is that it restores us to the law. Did you get that? It restores us to the law. It doesn't make the law worthless. It restores us. Why? Because we're no longer afraid of it. Under the second use of the law, we were scared to death of it. We hated the law. It exposed us. For the third use, now we love thy law, for it saved us. It was the law fulfilled by Christ that saves us. Oh, how I love your law, O Lord, said the psalmist. What did he know that modern-day, quote, gospel-centered Christians didn't know? He understood the full redemptive cycle of the law. You'll hear that word a lot, hopefully, in the series, the redemptive cycle of the law. 
and it is good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Help us now, we pray, to be open to seeing moral clarity, to discerning that moral clarity that is from your law. And Lord, help us to see it in a way that would humble us, that would enable us to renew our confession of sin to you, but without fear because of the hope of the gospel as a law fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We pray that this would become more than just a a sermon series, but a habit of mind, a way of living, living with you, reconciled to you, restored to your law and to the moral clarity that it brings to us as lights to the world. Come, Lord Jesus, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so let's look at this little word. The, the, uh, you'll notice, just to give you a little brief uh, here, the fifth commandment you see in this passage, honor thy father and mother, of course, is translated by Paul to be to those who strike their fathers and mothers. They shall not kill, he translates as, for murderers. Thou shalt not commit adultery, verse 10, he'll describe as the sexually immoral in those who practice homosexuality. In verse 8, I mean, this eighth one, thou shalt not steal, he talks about man-stealers, sometimes interpreted enslavers. And on he goes, thou shalt not covet perjurers, those who who promise and desire things. You'll, You'll get into that later. But here's the, here's the thing. You see what he's doing? He's looking at a church that thinks of itself as pretty righteous, evidently. And he's calling them these names. <laughs> sort of in the vein of James. If you know the, uh, the, the book of James, James will make the case that if you break one, one part of the law, you break it all. Now, the only way that James can say that, listen to this, is because James, like all good biblical theologians know... Every sin, small s, is attached to a great sin, capital S, of rejecting the covenant of God. Rejecting God's rightful authority over our lives. His lordship. Every one of those little sins we do. The cute ones, and there are not really cute, and some things we make them cute, right? But the cute ones and the not so cute, they all come right down to this very ugly I love what you said today. Thank you, Emily. That was really profound. And that provoking him to his face. Now, you ask, how could that provoke him such? This is your creator. This is your provider. This is one who's never, ever, ever, ever once abused his authority in your life. Only has he he prospered you through his authority. This is... This is to exasperate true and good and loving authority like nothing before. Imagine, you know, someone who is your provider, your caregiver, your lover, your... And and imagine, if you could, a perfect, well, parent. There is no perfect parent. But imagine one for a moment who who would exert all of their powers and wealth and authority and lordship, everything only to protect you, to love you, to care for you, to give you life. And imagine then that phrase that we heard today. For us to say, I don't want you in my life, Dad. 
or in the and that's exactly the language that the scriptures will use of rejecting of kind of echo the word in Romans one is this you had everything revealed to you about God and what did you you took it and you just crunched it away I mean literally that's a graphic way of describing kind of echo you took hold of it you had it in your grasp and you just twisted it and pushed it down said no I don't want you in my life. That's what's underneath those cute little sins. A rejection. It's a rejection. God goes to all extremes to convey this rejection in the Old Testament and the New. He wants to help you understand the relationship of a husband and a wife this way. And he gives you these graphic portrayals of a husband. I'm thinking here particularly in, in, in the prophets. In Ezekiel where particularly, I mean, in yeah, Ezekiel where where the husband walks into his bedroom and he finds his wife naked with another man. In very graphic, almost pornographic language so that Israel would understand just how provoking their sin of rejecting God after other lovers. Remember that love? Misplaced love, disordered love. That's what sin is, you know. And so here we come to this, this word, this idea of our relationship to authority. And he says, those who strike their fathers and mothers. This, this is, of course, rooted in the fifth commandment. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. There's a really interesting promise there that Paul wants the Ephesus people to know when he says this in Ephesians. He says, hey, Ephesus, again, the people that Timothy's going to. Did you notice that there's a promise attached to this commandment, the only one? In other words, have you rethought the idea of authority in your heads as not something to be resisted, but something to be craved? Did you see how far I just went? Not something to be resisted. I didn't go, but tolerated. I said something to be craved. Paul is making a case for our relations with authority. Authority that is ordained of God. And he's saying, these authorities, none more fundamental than our parents, are the means by which God brings us life and flourishing. Embrace it. And so he has this idea Deuteronomy, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God has given you. It's very interesting how this is related then to prosperity, not just in the home, but in the civil and in the economic spheres even. Somehow father and mother, particularly if you go back to that that agrarian world, that patriarchal world, that, and I don't use patriarchal in a bad word right now, I mean the, you know... <laughs> Well, I have an image in my head out there in, 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 the, uh, in the hills of Afghanistan through someone I know. And, and just how revered these village elders are. And how gracious, mostly, they are in expending their authority as patriarchs to protect and extend hospitality to the people. There's a context here. Where the world was not divided so neatly into all these different spheres, but they were all sort of blunked up together like this. Father and mother was much more 
than a nuclear father, family father or mother. And as you go through redemptive history, you're going to see that. And so the first question I want to ask you is just that. Who is your father or your mother? That is, who's your mama? Who's your daddy? Right? That kind of thing. I want to repeat what you heard earlier from John Calvin when he answers this question. He says, just as the relationship with Yahweh is the beginning of the covenant, so the relationship between parents and children is the beginning of society. The inevitable point of departure for every human authority. No other human relationship is so fundamental, and none is more important. And so there we have this idea of of this authority. Under the Old Testament, oftentimes we see how the fifth commandment is applied using the same language to relationships like those who were their judges. And judges, Deborah is described as a mother of Israel, the mother of Israel acting in authority as the judge and as really the civil magistrate of that day. You have David to Saul where the king, David, is described as his father. He says it, see my father, see the corner of your cloak in my hand. And this was an instance where he is keeping the fifth commandment, as we'll see later on. In a moment where he was most tempted to violate the fifth command, to honor thy father and thy mother, one who God has ordained in his authority over his life and had every reason justifiably, you might even argue, to do it, he calls him his father. Very clearly more than just a sentimental phrase. He's hearkening back to the fact that I live under the fifth commandment. You are my father, king of Israel. And I have your cloak in my hand, which is proof that I could have killed you right now. But I didn't, even though everyone around me said you should. Even though you have been abusing me. But I didn't. It's not for me to strike you down. And this now gets to the language of Paul. This idea of striking. We see, again, before we get there in a minute, we see it also in the New Testament. All through the Old Testament, you see father and mother applied to civil authorities and and to other types of authorities in their lives. The church, particularly, you see the same thing, fathers of the faith. In the New Testament, you also see it as well. Interesting, again, in, in Ephesians, that passage I referenced earlier, he will talk about honor thy father and mother, and then he uses the same language to apply to the marriage relationship between a husband and wife. He'll use the same language to apply to the relationship of of children, of course, to parents, but then also of of those workers or or servants of masters. Very clearly, he's recognizing the fifth commandment is extending beyond the nuclear family. 1 Peter 2, for the Lord's sake, accept the authority of every human institution, whether of the emperor as supreme or of governors as sent by God. Did you hear that? Romans 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. That's that's amazing. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, this is jolting. The emperor was very corrupt, if you didn't know. Hebrews 13, obey, honor is the word, your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There he's talking about church fathers, 
and mothers. First Timothy 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. There's even here a reference to the the fifth command as to those who are our elders in a manner that they, while might not have an office of authority, represent someone who's to be honored by virtue of their lives. In summary then, to the question, who are meant by father and mother in the fifth commandment, our consensus, a consensus written 350 years ago in the Westminster answers, by father, mother, and the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts and especially such as God's ordinance are over us in a place of authority, whether family, church, or commonwealth. So who's your father right now? Is it a professor? Is it a boss? Is it a father, mother in your nuclear family? Is it a church elder, pastor? Who is it? President? Governor? Mayor? Alderman? Who is it? And now, that's who we're talking about, your relationship with those kind of people. How do we honor them? What does it mean? He says, who strike their fathers and mothers. This word to strike is a very, very strong word. It doesn't necessarily mean literally hit, though it could. It's translated that way by some, not all of the English translations, only because it gets to the force of the word. But the word means basically to do violence to. To do violence, to harm, to curse them. This violence, we'll see, is in many and various forms. We see it in the form of slander, the Proverbs we read today. Speaking in such a manner of their person's that therefore works with the already inherent original sin temptation of rejecting all authority all the way up to God. Notice all these other authorities are just a train right up to God. In us is a sin problem that wants to reject authority over our lives. For they do what's right in their own eyes is the, the best definition of sin you'll ever get. And we are now told in Proverbs, that we are doing great violence to the authority that God's put in our lives when we slander them and say those sorts of things about them that play into the temptation in our world to hate authority. It's that kind of thing, this word, in other words. Proverbs 20, as you saw. Proverbs 30, there's a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. Are we Christians of all people part of that generation? That's what Paul was worried about, to do violence. Yes, in the negative, the don'ts, it's to strike. Proverbs 19, he who does violence to his father chases away his mother is a son who brings shame and reproach upon himself. That's the don't proverb. I honor thy father and mother. The do would be something like Proverbs 1.8. Hear, my child, your father's instruction, and do not reject your mother's teaching. 
Proverbs 3, my child, do not forget my teachings, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and abundant welfare they will give you. Do you notice constantly this promise? This promise that keeps coming. Whenever they're talking about fifth commandment, it's unbelievable how common it is, this promise. It will go well with you. I won't do it now, but but recently I read something that just just uh, surveyed rulers of of different eras, both in America but outside of America in various places. Some incredibly evil, some acknowledged as perhaps one of the most prolific in blessing their countries in spite of their evil. It's just this interesting promise that somehow it seems God makes use of the institution of authority, even in some instances where you would think that couldn't be. It's consistent. And so we have this idea of striking, to honor. What is the general scope of the fifth commandment? Ask our confession of faith. The general scope of the fifth commandment is their performance of those duties which are mutually owe in our several relations as inferiors to superiors. And I hate that word, inferiors to superiors, because we today don't think in terms of office. We think in terms of person, right? I hear that, and I'm saying what? That you are, your identity, your person is inferior. You're somehow less the image of God than your authority. That is not what our confession meant at all. Quite the contrary. They're honestly looking at social relations and the way in which they relate to one another in these roles. And that's all it is. It's interesting in 1 Timothy, for instance, when talking about this. And this is the same. He's obviously concerned about it because he picks it up again in, in his letter to Timothy. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's, that's Paul saying... Don't admit of any slander against authority except through due process. That's what he's talking about. This is legal language here. That's just amazing. It is the moral obligation, you see, of the fifth commandment to give those who lawfully hold public office of governors, quote, all due reverence in heart, word, and behavior, prayer, and thanksgiving, including defense and maintenance of their persons and authority according to their several ranks. Notice, according to their ranks. Didn't say according to their persons. And the nature of their places, there it is again, bearing with their infirmities. Infirmities? What infirmities? People in authority don't have infirmities, right? And covering them in love so they may be an honor to them and to their government. Christians ought not to therefore do these other things that it talks about in in our larger catechism. To deprive lawful appointed governors of their dominions or lives even if she or he or she shall judge them to be heretics or upon any other pretense whatsoever. Did you hear that? (laughs) It's getting tough. Are you all getting uneasy? I'm getting uncomfortable. I'm beginning to understand why people hate the law. And this is stuff that's happening according to all this, according to Christ. This isn't just what we say publicly on Facebook and social media. This is stuff that we say to ourselves internally in our hearts about our fathers and our mothers. Who's your father and mother? 
Think about this. Are you beginning to feel conviction of sin? Is it starting to humble you? It is me, honestly. I mean, I'm over here kind of shaking a little bit. It's feeling very uncomfortable in this room for me. The bottom line is to obey the fifth commandment is to honor, not disparage, not to curse, not to do violence in word or action to those who God has appointed. Again, in the words of our confession, it's not to have contempt of or rebellion against their persons and places. It's not to curse them. It's not to mock them. I'm reading straight from Westminster Confession. And all such refractory and scandalous carriage as proves a shame and dishonor to them and their government. Now, ask yourself, what should I be posting on Internet about anybody in authority? What should I be saying to my friends? What should I be thinking in my heart? Now, there's, of course, reciprocal duties of, quote, superiors to inferiors, using that language. Fathers, were told in Ephesians 6, are not to provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does it mean to provoke? Again, for the sake of time, I need to move on. By rejecting those that have been given the, the stewardship, uh, neglecting those that we have been given stewardship over is one way to, to, to uh, provoke. If you're an authority, to not care for the people that you're, you're, you've been given to care for. But also, it's to abuse them. And to abuse your authority, which is to provoke them to sin against you and your authority, which is really to sin against God. And so, I wish I had more time to engage that. I'd encourage you to go to the larger catechism of our of Confession of Faith, and there's a very voluminous list of how uh, superiors should act to inferiors. But I need to go to this last question, realizing our time, because this is a very important question. When or why, then, do we honor those who are in authority? That is to say, okay, I, I, got the moral clar- I got the moral clarity. I know who my father and mother is. I know what it means to strike. But is there any place where I have the right not to? Notice, again, 1 Peter 2 when he talks about this. For the Lord's sake is added to honor your father and mother. In Ephesians, unto the Lord is added to honor your father and mother. This really is a confusing statement for us today, post-enlightenment, because we live in a context that many describe as expressive individualism. Now, what that means is that we moved away from an idea of an institutional idea of recognizing and perhaps even unintentionally within the context of God's sovereignty, recognizing the offices of authority and therefore the persons that in God's providence, God's decrees, have put them in office. So there's a due respect for that office and therefore the person who fills that office. Now that's very contrary to expressive individualism. That's a view that would say, look, it's all about relationships, personal relationships, my relationship to my governor, my parent. And I give authority when I have a relationship with this person that therefore enables me to trust them. In other words, I will give authority in my own eyes when they deserve it, based on this personal relationship. 
This is an era, I know, it's all about relationships because we want trust. But if what here the Paul is saying is, no, we trust because God ordained. Now, here's a very clear statement to that effect. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It's in Romans. God has appointed, decreed is the word there, has decreed. And so you're asking the question, understandably, well, are you kidding me? Even when these people are infidels, using the word of our confession, or have a different religion maybe, or those who hold public office doesn't make void, and, and they say no, those who hold public office, even though they may be infidels and indifference of religion, does not make void the magistrates just in legal authority, nor free the people from their due obedience to them. It's our loyalty to God, respecting his sovereign decree unto the Lord, in other words, is why we give this honor. And so this is perfectly illustrated by David, as I've mentioned before. It's mentioned how it is that, that, that Saul had become a very corrupt king and had used his authority to oppress and abuse David. But even David said, it's not going to be me. The Lord will have to take him out through whatever due process there was in that day, which could have been a smite. It could have been a lot of things. But isn't that amazing? You know, it's, it's an honest question, and I get it. It's an honest question, whether it's with your professor, whether it's against your parent, whether it's whoever it is, to say, but at what point does unto the Lord mean I don't have to obey? And there's an answer. You know, we speak to the office of power if we're going to speak less the person. In other words, to a statement that has been around, you know, some people know Bonhoeffer's statement, not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. That is speaking to authority. There's a truth to that. Another way of saying it, we must always take sides, for neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim, and silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. These are charged statements, but they they get to something true, don't they? I mean, what are we supposed to do? Well, here's your answer again. We speak to the office of power, lest the person, first of all. What does that mean? We advocate for right policy. We don't have permission to slander persons. It's not personal. We advocate for good policies. We speak truth into the office where we need to speak truth. But be careful. If you're representing your policy as Christian, be very careful. For the problem in Ephesus, no less than today, is that we have a tendency to listen to our private revelations rather than submit our declarations to the word of God. In other words, I'll say this. If your advocacy is representing it as Christian advocacy, then follow the regulative principle of interpreting Scripture, which is a principle which is meant to protect 
uh, conscience. And that is, to only that which you can discern from Scripture by good and necessary inference, as contained in the Scripture. It's not for us to add on, subtract from, say anything contrary to or even beside the Scripture as that which would bind our society's conscience. We would have to be careful and clear. Now, there are many other issues here, but I'm hoping to bring some moral clarity. Again, God is bigger than the person. He has instituted these offices as an extension of his authority. I mean, it would be convenient, wouldn't it, if we just kept God in the abstract? Let's just be honest. If I didn't have a parent in my life, kids. Because God would never speak to me audibly. Well, that would be a relief if you want to get out of authority, right? God would never be there to execute any kind of reinforcement and encouragement or, yes, curse or, or punishment. So I'm brought now, I hope and pray, I hope you are brought to a place of moral humility. I mean, if I ask you now, after what has been said, and I hope it's clearly from scriptures, I knew how to do it, and I know there's a lot left unsaid. I mean, this topic is huge. But who among you, honestly, could raise your hand right now and say, I'm good. I don't violate the fifth commandment. Who could do that? I mean, how hard did you try when you were a little kid, and maybe you are a little children right now, to obey your parents growing up as unto the Lord? Didn't you try? And when you screwed up, you go back and you tell them, I'm sorry, and you try again? <laughs> I remember those days trying to please my father and my mother. And then it got into a stage of life where I kind of threw it away. But there's something inside of me. There's something really wrong with me. And the word is, again, sin. There's a moral corruption that has come down through the ages. It's in my heart. I don't like authority. Why? Because I don't like God. I don't want God. I'm provoking him to his face. I have that inside of me to resist. Now, the good news of the gospel. Moral clarity brings moral conviction and and humbleness and humility where we now are just left literally like, like, just like rags on the ground. We're not through with the law, praise God. We're not through with this law, redemptive law cycle, because now what are we going to do? Is there someone who will set me free from this body of death? We cry. Is there anything that can restore me? Because I'm feeling pretty sick right now. Anything? And the answer is Jesus Christ. Who came, he said in Matthew, not to abolish the law, as in to, to extend grace against law but to fulfill it. And that's exactly what he did. In his moral perfection, think about it. Can you think of one time when, Paul, when, when Christ violated the fifth commandment? Did he violate it with Herod? Nope. Even though Herod unjustly was crucified. Did he violate it with his own father, God? Nope. Not my will, thy will be done as he went to the cross. 
in submission to his father? There were moments when he would call out authority in the temple especially, but only by good and necessary inference from Scripture. He would say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and then what is he doing? He's, he's basically exegeting the Scripture, calling them out against Scripture, their authority. This one who died for your sins is quite clear on the fifth commandment. He understood it. He lived it perfectly. And the good news of the gospel is he did that for you and me. So that you're sitting here thinking now, man, I have provoked God to his face in the way I've been talking and speaking and writing and, and Facebooking and slandering and my friendships and Oh, man, do I need to go to my parents now? Oh, man, do I need to? I mean, I can just see it happening right now. I mean, how many people are, are you thinking, i got to go to them? <laughs> i got to ask their forgiveness. Oh, thank God for this cross. God is setting you free from your guilt and your condemnation. For in Christ, he who knew no sin became sin that his righteousness might be accredited to you. We know that Christ's righteousness was sufficient because it was validated by the resurrection three days later, wherein it was clearly proclaimed by the act of resurrection that all judgment has been satisfied. It's done. There's no more death left. The death of death, as the great John Owen said. There was the death of death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so you would ask, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have a clean conscience right now? It's really simple. Repent, which is to confess. Acknowledge. Don't run away from it. Let the law do its thing. Confess your sins. Put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And you will be forgiven. And where you continue to struggle with your sin, you're here from this table where your sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. It didn't annul the law. It's attached to the law. That the law fulfilled in Christ now is your righteous standing with God. And now restored to the law, no longer afraid of the law, we come to this table recommitting our lives. Tomorrow, Lord, help me, please help me not to say and do those things that violated your fifth commandment. In your strength and in your power, by your Holy Spirit, you're going to reset my identity where I don't have to do this anymore. It's a false form of power. And I will obey you. And then next week you could come back, and though you tried... Somewhere in your heart, probably, not other ways, you've slipped. And you'll repeat the law cycle, the redemptive law cycle. Praise be to God. You'll repeat it every day. We repeat it. Moral clarity, moral humility, moral redemption. Amen.